0: We know of new methods of attack.
1: The Trojan horse. the fifth column.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades and compañeros, welcome to another edition of the fifth column. This is an, a familiar but unfamiliar voice at the beginning of this podcast because we are recording live without Camille Foster. Thank God mm-hmm. he's not here. He was going to come and he didn't come. And the trip is so much better because of it. My God. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? imagine? Yes. He'd be going around telling everybody how, you know, there was no such thing as race. And it's like, you know, we're in Israel. Because <laughs> that's where we are, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We're in Tel Aviv, Israel, at a <laughs> recording studio. I suppose we'll post a picture of this for the, yeah. you know, because yeah, our, our friend Yael, who is a, kind of American, kind of Israeli, kind of NYPD, kind of IDF. We don't know what she's doing. I saw her kind she's of all deny sorts of her, yeah. her
2: american her, her heritage. The other night. She is Do also anti- you know anti-Semitic
0: too, which is also very disturbing. Yeah,
2: um,
0: I will say that there is a writer who I believe is from Israel who sent me a message on uh, uh, via DM after I think hearing that we were going to be in Israel. <laughs> And you know her, and you could probably figure it out from that. Uh, she said, um, "You you might come back anti-Semitic, so please uh, let me guide you." And she's like, "Here's here's here's what you should do, and where you should go, etc." So, so very there's a sensitivity, and not. Uh, American Jews, because this is what we discovered. And yeah, we can see her through the glass.
2: Yeah, she's giving. us Imagine
0: a 1970s sort of studio in which Toto or REO Speedwagon is playing and there's a producer pushing up the levels. Uh, I can see her over there, but we did have a discussion today that there is a vast chasm that separates American Jews and Israeli Jews. Yeah. And there's nothing more obvious than coming to Israel to see that. <laughs> and as I said to Yael, and we'll get in, because we have a fantastic guest, but I'll get into it in, in a second. We'll talk uh, about this a little more after uh, we talk to our guest. But um, the thing that you notice, because uh, you know, we've been interacting with a lot of people, is that they themselves say this. Volunteer it. Yeah, and the thing on. is, and, and I said to Yael today, it must be really annoying that a bunch of people who are like, I don't live here, I've never lived here. I'm not from here, but I'm going to tell you how everything should be. (laughs) And as an American who lived in Europe, I'm used to this experience, but uh, more about that in a minute. Um, We have a fantastic guest. And it is kind of punctuating a previous episode that we did with one Martin Gurry, uh, Revolt of the Public. A similar style book, slightly different blurbs on the back. Um, A Israeli journalist, writer, public intellectual. Anything else? What should we say? Mania
1: journalist, raccontor, mania journalist,
0: mm-hmm. mainly a journalist, charming. A,
2: he two fists, red wine, and coffee. He's a, In this is studio. an Israeli. I'm trying. I, I'm trying to balance
1: yeah.
0: the two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is. <laughs> yeah. I I attribute everything that I don't understand to being an Israeli trait. So apparently, Israelis drink coffee and red wine at the same time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Nadav Ayal. I'm pronouncing that p- p- correctly, Perfect. right? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, the book is uh, revolt. It says on the top, "in the international bestseller. It's kind of taunting you. Uh, the worldwide <laughs> uprising against globalization. The thing that's interesting about this, beyond um, a couple of the chapters that, that uh, I've been reading and want to talk about, there's a blurb from uh, President Bill Clinton. Mm. How'd you get that one?
1: Yeah. Well, I spoke with uh, some of his friends here in Israel, yeah. which I know well, and they sent the book over, and, uh, and I got the blurb. You got the blurb. Yeah. That was it. Um, and you also... Uh, you I didn't need to pay for it. If you, I, was I was wondering mean. if you paid for no, it. No girls <laughs> were involved. No, I paid no
0: one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if you yeah. had to make a donation to the Clinton no, Foundation. No, absolutely
1: not. <laughs> um, sometimes that happens. <laughs> but, um, but, but go ahead, just ask the questions. <laughs> I will. Yeah, I will do that. Um,
0: <laughs> why don't we start this way? Because there's a lot in this book. It it is uh, goes all around the world, um, including, you know, from... Western Pennsylvania to neo-Nazis in Germany. Qu- quite, a, quite a travel itinerary you have. Let's yeah. go, uh, as an Israeli, hang out with Nazis in Germany. Sounds like fun. Um, the general premise of the book, uh, the worldwide uprising against globalization, uh, an issue we talk about a lot. Give us a kind of precy, a sense of you know what you're arguing with this book.
1: I'm arguing that we are experiencing a sentiment in politics today. And that sentiment is uh, something that I label just generally revolt. And that means that our power structures are either hollow, uh, inappropriate, corrupt, racist, sometimes, and that people comprehend that. Illusions of control by uh, power brokers have all been shattered And I I focus on globalization itself. And when I say globalization, I don't mean globalization in the means of uh, just economic, you know, uh, flows of uh, capital or or labor. I I mean the liberal structure of globalization. What the world, the Western bloc, tried to do after 1945 in order to win the Cold War. And what I'm saying is that this structure that was built to win the war, this was the essence of that structure. It worked well. Uh, And now it's it's failing. And then I detail in in specific places the sentiment of what I label the rebels. Mm -hmm. And I do that emphatically. I, I don't criticize that. I don't think that the rebels is just, you know, another name for people who support Trump. Or (laughs) deplorable. I I bring that quote in the book. And and, and one of the things that I say is where were these elites in my country and in other countries when these things happened? So the quote opening the book is by Frederick Douglass. uh, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And the argument there is that the sentiment of the revolt is being harnessed today for what we're seeing. And the best way to describe it is a crusade against the values of progress. Things that people from the right and from the left can unite about. And this is the reason that what, what we're seeing in the United States, what sometimes I'm hearing on your, your own podcast, yeah. you know, it's, it's basically people who are, Crazy? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Wait, is that the, our podcast? podcast? Um, no. I'm not I don't sure. Um, uh, and are we the crazy ones? <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, uh, when you drink, sometimes <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I got to that point. I get to one hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, so yeah twenty-five yeah. Every, minutes. Ninety percent. Maybe I shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no. no, it's no. Nothing, nothing good happens after an hour and twenty. So there is a reasonable. <laughs> there is a reasonable. Uh, idea there that you should make decisions according to information and you can, should use your, your rational and we can argue about these ideas sure. as right uh, wingers or left wingers and progressives and what you would call once conservatives and you can no longer do that in many political systems today. So um, an example I bring in my book is, is my daughter walking to, to school, she might see a police officer on the way to school, and it's his job, you know, to do some rounds in the neighborhood. And, but she spends, I don't want to say most of her time, but at least half of her waking time of her daytime on her phone. And yeah. she's how old? And. and She's eleven years old, huh. uh, and we don't allow yet Instagram, TikTok, and the rest. Oof, keep so it up. Keep yeah, it keep up. It but mine's up. eleven. Uh, mine's um, she's Instagram. trying to corrupt the eleven-year-old yeah, over there. I'm, I'm yeah. returning from here to, back to the Civil War in, in my house, yeah. but and, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and I, I get all kind of compl- you know campaign bulletins, you know, in the morning at six a.m. You're ruining my life, and uh, but but the point is that she will not see. Any element of those norms, yeah. when she spends time on her phone, we don't want a pop up for of police officer, you know, popping up on her WhatsApp conversation saying, "Oh, I'm I'm just I'm just there." So it's natural for us to see the force of our norms in our public discourse, but it's completely, you know, it seems to us an abomination that it will enter our, you know. Smartphones, for instance. And I do think it's an abomination. Yeah. But I think that this brings a paradox and a tension, which is just impossible to live with for these power structures just, just to survive. So this is very medium level. But then I go and talk about the EU and the idea of the EU and why you cannot have, you know, um, a, a fiscal not have a fiscal union and have a monetary union. And I actually talk about how all these dreams of that new world, uh, all these elements and ideas that it's all behind us, you know, pandemics are behind us and wars are behind us. This was in a kind of uh, yeah, a Fukuyama
0: kind of way, which I think a lot of yes, people yeah, misunderstood his essay. In and he's, I mean, I've I've spoken to him about this, and and he has argued much the same. But that general sense that even if it's Fukuyama that's saying it, that after sort of ninety one, ninety two, we have a little interregnum with the Balkan War, which is like, okay, that's an inconvenience, but it's it's breaking up a, a kind of uninterrupted a time of prosperity bill clinton uh, blurbs your book he looks like an incredible president in hindsight with in a great economy and a relatively peaceful world 911 happens but didn't actually change us in the way that we thought it was going to
2: unless it did i mean that's it might that's have I mean, part, it might have yeah like your your sense of how things fractured uh, fun fact new world order um as a as a phrase was Uh, not totally introduced, but popularized in uh, a joint appearance by George H.W. Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev when they were talking about why we cannot stand to have a larger, more militarized neighbor swallow up uh, a small one. It's it's (laughs) one of the most ironic little uh, hinge points and everyone freaked out about that but for a moment the leader in Moscow and the leader in Washington agreed that sovereignty busting invasions are a really really a uh, uh, bad thing but in your telling um, is it so it's a, a combination and I'm interested in the word crusade we'll get back to that maybe um, the thing that snapped, the thing that changed is nine eleven. is it not? And, and coupled with, on the citizen side, uh, frustration that's born by – or an alienation that's born by technology, which just creates new spheres where the old post-45 or post-1948 rules no longer apply.
1: Yeah. Well, the structures I build in the book, uh, I, I begin in – with the age of responsibility. And my argument is that after 1945, the world was in pause. Uh, It was in shock after the war. And this was because of personal and collective memory it wasn't because of ideologies. It's not that the Eastern Bloc or the Western Bloc or the way that the world was politically structured that led leaders to be more responsible in their actions. So if you look at, for instance, voting tendencies in Western Europe, if you look at voting tendencies in the United States, uh, how Americans reacted to um, candidates that gave the impression that they're going to lead to war. you saw, And also if you look at the Politburo. In Moscow, so you see it everywhere that those extremes were sidelined. All over the world. And I think, and I argue, that this is not because of ideologies or political structure. It's simply because of memory. These people and their voters, their supporters, remembered the war. And one of the things that we usually don't remember is that in 1945, they remembered, usually most of them, two wars, two wars yeah. uh, that destroyed the world. And in essence, at the heart of those uh, recollections was the Holocaust. Uh, At least in Western Europe, it was very much so. And that's the essence of the EU. So they distanced themselves, both the voters and the supporters and then the politicians. And if I need to mark the moment that this ended, I mark it as historians mark the death of Rome. uh, They say it's Mm 476. And they choose 476 just because it was... a. a tribe leader that uh, called himself a king. And they knew that Romans hated the term king. They would never use that term. And all the other tribe leaders before, them, he, uh, before him just called himself, themselves Caesar. Mm-hmm. So they said, okay, 476, it's most certainly dead there. But the Romans didn't understand that Rome was dead at 476. So there was no formal announcement. So I use 9-11 because 9-11 is such a symbolic element. And I think that when historians write about our times, they would say, these were the years after 9-11. There were agents of fundamentalism on one side, trying to envision a world of an endless war between religions. This was... The project of Osama bin Laden, the project relatively failed, but they attempted to do that. And by doing so, they unleashed with it a stream of forces that were already waiting. Uh, some of them were, you know, emboldened by nine eleven. For instance, I don't think that we can uh, take a look at the extreme right, nationalist right or supremacist supremacist. Uh, right-wingers in the United States or in Europe today without thinking about 9-11 yeah. as a sort of a context to that. Uh, so I use uh, 9-11 as, as a signature point to, to what we are at today. And I call it a status quo of revolt. And when you look at modernity, at the age of modernity, we were born, you know, the three guys in this room, we were born into an anomaly. And the anomaly was that pose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, if you look at the era of revolutions and wars and the way that the world is changing so actively and quickly on be, based on technology, the Industrial Revolution, and just the weight of, that this places on, on our uh, humanity, then you see that this is actually the age of revolt. Th- this is a status quo that we need to to stay with. So in the introduction, I give an example, I give a story yeah. of me uh, giving a talk to...
0: Rich people. To
1: rich people. Yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and, in and, 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 you know, in, in a wine cellar. And and this person who invited me and paid me to do so, it was after my book was published in Hebrew, that was back in the beginning of 2018. Uh, that person, the name is known to your, you know, yes. kn- known for everyone. I'm, I'm not mentioning it uh, in the book. And they... Um, basically, I, I told them, look, if everything is so great, seems so great, why do so many people feel trapped? Mm. And I can give you some very good examples for them feeling that. One example, for instance, that I bring is, and is semi-conservative, shouldn't mention it in many places, mm-hmm. is that fertility is dropping. Yeah. It drop, not only in developed countries but also in developing countries, countries that you would never expect. Turkey, Iran, you know, Iran is right now allowing child marriages because it's seeing its fertility dropping. You know, if I'm looking, and I, I actually write that in, in the book, if I, I am looking at a herd, uh, you know, of antelopes, and they have all the food they need, and their health is the best that it, it has have ever been, and their numbers are beginning to drop. I start asking questions about social structure, about the politics of the herd, about the aggressive bales, uh, about contamination. So I start asking these questions. We're not asking these questions. So there are really a lot of sort of good arguments to make here that this is not sustainable. Anymore, And I think that everybody feels that it's not sustainable with our current structures today. And this, I bring to those people in that wine cellar, and they say, oh, no, it's just, you know, it's pessimism. It's your generation. I was born in 1979. You know, they're all in their 60s and 70s. Um, you should just, you know, if you invest money, the S&P always goes up. Everything's <laughs> just going to be great. You know, it's just Donald Trump is just a cloud. It's it's just a backlash, right? Do you remember that time in American press? It's yeah. a populist wave. It's a populist wave. Well, my argument is that it's not a wave. It's, it's our reality right now. So if there's uh, a lot to
0: bite off there. Um, a, a couple things. When you're talking to those people, and you talk to a lot of people, I mean, you, even if you talk to me, I mean, I've, I've made similar arguments on this podcast. And I remember making, I think I made this argument on the Bill Maher show uh, before Trump was elected. And if you look at certain indices and certain measures— pretty good time to be alive, right? Yep. I mean, life expectancy, you know, Stephen Pinker's book, uh, Better, better Angels. No, but the Better <laughs> Angels of Our Nature, everyone uh, slammed it before they read it because they said that can't be true because of the kind of presentism of everything around us is collapsing. But it is, you know, better time. I mean, if you were to pick a time Absolutely. to be alive, it'd be now. Any yeah. Anytime it yep. would be now. But
1: I get... Your argument. A couple of things that I wanted to. Um, I, I ask, want to say something yeah. about Steven Pinker's yeah, uh, yeah. book. Uh, with enlightenment now, or, yeah. uh, the point is this: reciting the advantages of progress yeah. is not going to solve anything. Which your friends did at the yeah, the, uh, educating yeah. people, yeah. saying to people, when you live a, a terrifically good life in urban city centers, academia doesn't matter telling people, oh, you're just not educated enough about progress and you don't understand. That's what Obama did in 2016. Look, that it's, that it's, was it's, exactly, you it, know, yeah. that kind of preaching thing. It never works. It's, so you it, need yeah. to show them, I don't want to say show them the money, yeah. but basically, you know, it, it's through taxation. It's through, You need to change things. If you want progress to survive, you need to struggle for it all the time. And I'm saying this as a, you know, I'm not a real American progressive. So yeah. I don't want to say progressive. <laughs> In America, a, a liberal. I would probably fr- yeah. fr- I, I fr- really, they might even, you know, cast me as a conservative, yeah. you know, but I'm an Israeli progressive. So you need to work for these things. And no. they have not worked for these things. They try to educate people. So we know the data. And all that data, all these facts are true. <laughs> and then we're seeing politics.
0: So it's funny because, you know, Matt knows this very well. And despite the fact that I imagine that there's a number of points of, uh, of disagreement here, one of the things that's interesting is we have had about a million conversations about the kind of Engels concept of false consciousness, which everyone is constantly accused of. I mean, the book that Thomas Frank wrote, What's the Matter with Kansas? Why are you, why are you voting against your self-interest, says the man who lives in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I know what your self-interests are. You clearly don't. And to the other point of pointing, out, like, you know, I did a couple of documentaries about the um, first couple of years of Trump's presidency. And I traveled around and talked Advice. to a lot of people. Yeah, 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 I remember that. And there was one in particular, which I said it to the guy. We didn't use it because I, I didn't think it was fair. It didn't really fit the kind of, uh, you know, narrative of, of what we were talking about. But he was talking about globalization. This guy was losing his job at a factory. And everywhere around him, his wife was walking into the house with five <laughs> five Walmart bags on each arm, dropping stuff far cheaper than going to the kind of local shop. Everything there is made in China, the clothes are made in Bangladesh, et cetera. And it's not, I I realized then it wasn't really fair to say, why are you not taking your little money that you have from a non-union job, which is, you know, being sent to to Mexico anyway, in buying, you know, more expensive stuff, you know, and that is the thing that we do, regardless of, you know, what we agree or disagree on, is that to back away from this sense that people just need our guidance. Us, like, I understand the idea of the elites, you know, I, I, I get it. I, and I get it when people say that to me, like, you don't understand because you're, you live in Manhattan, you live in Brooklyn, you don't understand. That is tempting. Uh, I think there's some problems with it. But when you went, when you go, the reason that I was at a um, DeSantis rally last week, yeah, I, I, and ev- the number of people that had de- t-shirts said deplorables on it. Uh, the f- when Hillary Clinton said that, if she had told me she was going to say that, I, I would have said they're going to own it. They're gonna take that and repurpose it. And they're going to use that as a badge of honor because you don't really get the kind of mindset. And I wanted to ask you about kind of, you're Israeli, uh, you studied in England, I presume, right? Yeah. yeah. You write a lot about Europe. European populism became a force, I would probably say in the 90s in France, right? Mm. And it's been gaining steam it's a different set of circumstances, immigration's different, et cetera you know, it's not now, but it's now in America, you know, we, we think America's the world, right? But this is a wave that's been going on for, for quite a while. Does it predate 91? I mean, cause obviously 9-11 is a good anchor for a lot of things, not so much for other things. Um, and, you know, people that are um, our age, uh, you know, Matt and I, that was quite a shock to us. We started writing quite a bit. I remember that's when I first read Matt right after 9-11 and we thought this was going to change everything. I talk to people who are 24 years old who write, who, uh, who barely rem- don't even really know the context of it these days. So when you look at kind of the kind of global push towards a more populist, you know, revolt against globalization, where is the moment where you say, OK, now we're in trouble here. It's starting. Is there a moment that you see that, 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 that you know, because in Europe, it, it, it beats us in America by a bit.
1: For me, it. Uh- First of all, uh, I want to say something about what you said about Pennsylvania. And, yeah. Because I had the same experience. I was sitting in the Quigley's living room. Yes. In Mariana, Pennsylvania. The, the family you and, talk about. And, uh, yeah. and, and, but, and Jessica, who's married to one of the, uh, the men there, uh, said to me, it's never about here. Yeah. And I said, um, I wrote in the book, you can listen to what she says and you can say, oh, it's flyover country. Mm-hmm. Right, this is the concept. And that's what usually they talk about in that sense in America. It's flyover country, it's hillbilly, elegy, yeah. And sure. yeah. yeah. But when she said she, it's never here, my, my thought about that is that nowhere is here for no one. And in places that are poor and <clears throat> have just lost, you know, the coal mine, <laughs> being in nowhere you know, there is no here and, and that place is also, you know, terrible. Mm. Uh, that separates you from your identity and that insults you in, in a way that is, it's much more than, uh, oh, the elites are talking, you know, I've seen TV and it's about other countries and they're sending money overseas and all the rest. It's not only about populism, it's about presence that we have all lost but people in weak and poor places are losing even more. Uh, I met Marine Le Pen, to your question, I think it was 2010. She was running to the position of her father in the Front National, uh, that extreme semi-neo-fascist party, which she turned into sort of a, a mainstream neo-fascist party yeah. in France. And she's probably going to be, you know, very strong in next, uh, French election. I was also there when she just lost and it was like a victory party display. By the way, they served, this was the only, you know, <laughs> she lost the election and they served <laughs> eight course dinner, yeah. French dinner to everyone there. And there were wow. hundreds and hundreds of people and it was a party. People would not leave the place, mm. you know, hours mm. on end. And she told me in 2010, you know, we're not going to allow the mainstream right to steal our agenda. I said, you're going to win, you know, Sarkozy. He's he's saying the stuff that your father has said a few years ago. And she said, I don't want him to say that. I want to win. I want to own it. She didn't use these words. And two years earlier, and it's in the book, I met Nick Griffin, who's the oh, leader yeah, yeah. of the British B- Nationalist Party. Yeah. And that's that's a semi uh, it's effectively a Nazi party. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'll, I'll, say, I'll, I'll, say, I'll, I'll say, say, I mean, I, he was an MEP. I was, which thinking, is, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about libel laws in the UK yeah, yeah, when you yeah. said, okay, yeah, yeah f- 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 I'm going to go with that. <laughs>
0: fuck you, Nick Griffin. You're a fascist <laughs> and a Nazi. We yeah. don't like
1: you. We're in Israel. It's <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, and he said it was 2008. And I don't remember if it was right after Lehman Brothers or just before. Oh, no. But Lehman Brothers was around the corner. And he said, now it's going to be our time. Yeah, you know, you had a good run, you liberals. But now the fridge. When he was saying that to you, he might not have been meaning you liberals. <laughs> he yeah, might not have been- yeah, it might oh, be no. something else. I, I he yeah. said something you else about the Jews. liberals. Yeah, you yeah. Know, he, he suggested because you know all nationalists and racists suggest that Jews have a high kind of you know, uh, consciousness, and we communicate in ways yes, yeah. unseen, uh, probably <laughs> propelled by the Rothschilds or something. Yeah, and yes. So he suggested to me, just that, you know, back then a young journalist coming from Israel, that we strike a ceasefire, you know, me and him, between nationalists yes. and, and Jews. Yes. And I asked, why should we do that? And then he said, because when you'll evacuate Israel, you will need us you know, to take you in. What? Yeah. I thought you were yeah. going to say because we have a common it's enemy a of Muslims vice, It's now. a good Vice so, interview, yeah, yeah. right? It's a good yeah. Vice material. Yeah. So I came back with that, <laughs> that material back home. Yeah. And it's a, and, and, but, but his point about stuff disintegrating after yeah. 2008, that's true. And in 2010, when Marine Le Pen was saying that, I think Marine Le Pen is really important. And I make that argument in the book. Mm-hmm. The Le Pen family understood something about globalization that was understood in the US many years afterwards and that is that in order to destroy democracy today in an intertwined world in in our economy you need to resist and to destroy globalization.
0: Can I so, ask you a quick question that I wouldn't ask of most anybody else on this topic, but it, just a small brief detour because we are in Israel and because you're talking about Nick Griffin, you're talking about Marine Le Pen, whose father Jean-Marie Le Pen referred to the Holocaust as a detail of history. And there is an analog in the United States which predates all this, which is Pat Buchanan. And Pat Buchanan was, you know, saying that John Demjanjuk should be freed, Ivan the Terrible camp Mm-hmm. Camp Guard, who was uh, tried here in Israel twice, and that America shouldn't have gotten
2: involved in, in World it War wasn't, II. He wasn't, by the
1: way. He wasn't. The uh, Supreme Court in this country ruled that he wasn't Ivan the Terrible, and they're wrong.
2: The yeah, and he actually is. Okay. Uh, but
1: he, it's okay.
0: so uh, transparent. There's actually a good documentary about this on Netflix, if anyone uh, cares to watch it. But it comes to a similar com- conclusion. But you know, Matt, you know, like the book that America shouldn't have got it. W- globalization in that conversation, as an Israeli journalist and as a Jew it is anti-Semitic so much of the time, isn't it? It, it, The leading and bleeding edge of this is Jean-Marie Le Pen, is Pat Buchanan, is Nick Griffin. Like when you're going to, you actually visit Nazis in in, in Germany. I mean, what is the dynamic there when you're looking at this as an Israeli and so much of this is rooted in, you know, the oldest, longest hatred? So um,
1: first of all, there Intrigued to meet, so yeah. they're intrigued to meet, and I and I'm very interested in meeting them. You wear the horns.
0: You do. You have the
1: horns. Yeah, because <laughs> right, right, right. you can't see. It's not a video podcast. He does, in fact, have horns. Yeah, so right, right. Continue. Yeah, yeah. sometimes <laughs> it's just my horns just bump. Yeah, the they mic. bump the mic. Yeah, that's a Did horn that? That Yeah, that's right. a horn <laughs> hitting a mic.
0: So nobody be alarmed. It's okay. great. It's a great recording studio.
1: I'm looking at the engineer. He's fantastic. It's just the horns. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things they tell me. Um, is, you know, they say about us that when Jews come to us, they only leave as a pile of ash. And here you are. Yeah, yeah. They they don't say that. What a lovely conversation. And and the good thing about this is that a lot of the book was actually recorded and videoed because I was a reporter it's so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I you know i always have the the recordings there yeah. which are very important when you meet these kind of people i think that for them meeting in israeli is a way to cleanse themselves politically and i'm very careful when i do that mm-hmm. so uh, first of all i do not air to their own public mm-hmm. so i am not to be used as a fig leaf or we're normal I, I air that in a very specific context yeah. in which I go there and I have um a very detailed conversation in which, for instance, with the Nazis, uh, they present themselves. This guy presents himself as a as a nipster, a Nazi uh. hipster. That's a <laughs> Rolling Stone story. <laughs> oh, and I once my God. yeah, and yeah. I once had a <laughs> there was a German sort of um a German crowd coming to Israel, a German delegation, and I appeared before them and I said- I
0: thought he said a German crowd, by the way.
1: He <laughs> a German crowd, yeah. It's so, redundant. No, it's a, <laughs> yeah. a two words <laughs> uh, so, so the delegation, and I said I met, you know, this uh, Shredder guy, which is, is quite well known there, and he's a Nazi hipster, a combination of two very negative phenomena. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says in a really sweet-ass recording studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <so laughs> And it took them some time to, you know, to, to react to that. So um, when you sort of converse with him, one of the interesting things I found is how morality, the idea of morality is... In the, with the neo-Nazis or nipsters or whatever, is so similar to Nazis. Mm-hmm. So the idea that it doesn't matter what really happened, it matters who tells the story and how the story's told. And this so, is, you're talking, talking about memory before, too. Yeah, and, and, I was, and for yeah. me, as, as a Jew, uh, 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 you know, uh, t- as a Jew, yeah. as a Jew, there are many things. But yeah. for me, as a Jew, memory... And the idea that we remember—sometimes uh, they say uh, there's a quote in uh, in Hebrew. You know, the Jewish, the Jewish people have uh, a long memory, and they never forget. Uh, you know, those who were with them and against them, uh, and and for me to hear that is to understand much more about my own history, mm-hmm. and also to understand what we should be careful of. Because you guys, when you talk with me, I think your context must be american jews but israeli's are completely different were we you, are first you, of yes, all so yeah, i've been learning yes, yeah. yes they are yeah we, we very are very different first yeah. <laughs> first of all we're a majority group yeah and and we we and and i say this it's it's not always a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing we don't have uh those who walk in this country as as jews uh don't have you know the uh the understanding of what it is to live as a minority.
2: Mm-hmm. What yeah. he's saying is that they're really loud. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: they
1: are.
0: Yeah, really you're definitely, by the way, more of an American. Yeah, you're just,
2: just, so you know. Yeah,
0: yeah we've <laughs> met a lot of uh, Israeli Jews that uh, they're very uh, uh, demonstrative. They, they move around a lot. They <laughs> yell very. It's great. I, I mean, I enjoy it. Is, is it, right? is it right. because yeah. of the, I hit it, yeah. the horns? Yeah, yeah, yes, the yeah. beating on the, on yeah, the mic. constant horn yeah. beating. The memory thing. Um, talk a little bit about this. I'm sorry. I keep uh, kind of interrupting because it's too much to to talk about. In Germany in particular, you know, I, I quoted this earlier, and I don't remember who said it, but uh, you'll probably have heard this quote, is uh, um, that Germans will never forgive the Jews for the Holocaust, mm. which I think is the most insightful backwards quote ever. Um, and you see around the 1990s uh, the historiography of the Holocaust changing. Jörg uh, Friedrich, a guy where it's Der Brand, which is about the firebombing of Hamburg and, and Dresden, etc. cetera. Um, Gunther Grass, we find out that he was in the SS, but he writes Krebsgang, which is about German civilians dying in a ship that was torpedoed at the war. And it's, we are the victims now too, mm. right? We are going to take this back. We're exhausted by being perpetrators. We want to be victims. Everybody likes being victims. Right now in America it's a very weird thing that people do like being victims in You know, it's real victims don't like being victims. But um, in America right now, so much of our debate, our political debate is based on history, is based on things of the past, conversations about the 1619 project, et cetera. When I was in Ukraine, it's like every single question that I asked was a response that was spanned the past 75 years, Mm. Right. The Estonians that were there providing weapons. We were occupied by the Soviets. The Poles that were there providing. It's like this is our time for revenge. That actually seventy
2: five years of the Poles. Yeah, well, yeah, (laughs) that's like
0: yeah, much longer than that. So when you talk about memory and that kind of shifting memory, it wasn't going to be nineteen forty five forever. That kind of presentism at that time and the memory that follows it. Informs like Germany is not an anti-Semitic country now, no. and it's because they've been. I mean, if anything, you know, we see our, our, our uh, engineer in there. I'm, I want to get a nod from him if he's ever been to Germany. And you probably have. Germans are overly officious. To they're like they're like, is there anything I can do for you? I'm so sorry about everything. like they mm. just. It's the way that they've been conditioned, but that seems to be breaking. That seems to not be that memory. Is that memory is
1: is fake. is it's you know, replaced it's, with a different memory. it's now. sort of what you're 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 asking is is like asking, can we learn through history? Can we really learn through history as yeah. a collective, as yes. a national collective, as a community? That's a very good question. Or no. we can only learn from our own memories. Yeah. And and my response mm-hmm. to that is is so I subscribe to that that our memories are the only thing that counts. And when I say memories, I do mean physical memories or the memories of our parents, not even our grandparents. So you would see, for instance, a lot of Israelis, and I don't like that, and they would come to New York and they would say, I'm the grandson of two people who escaped genocide. Mm -hmm. And that would be sort of their entry to a conversation in some places, uh, in some progressive places, and Not like Starbucks you, or anything, though, right? No, That's not, it's just like so, a party. Maybe. It depends it's kind of if it's a thing to write in a cup. Is it, exactly, is it, yeah. is it Midtown or is it? Yeah, it's a village. Or, side. It might be different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that, you know, I don't get any sort of credit of understanding better genocide today or yeah. understanding the Syrian refugees I walked with and I talk about in the book because my grandfather escaped uh, Poland. I don't get that or because he lost his family. I can think about it, but in terms of sentiment, or in terms of understanding and analyzing the situation, I cannot do that. And what you're talking about memory is a sort of a backlash to this 1990s and beginning of 2000s. Everything, you know, in the past is just dead. It doesn't matter how Fukuyama really wrote that uh, article it's that became how it was a book. Yeah. it was structured yeah in in reality as something that corresponded with the clintonites and the the, the idea of the, you know the agreements in this country and you know everything has passed and you know we've got internet today and all these politicians mm-hmm. i write about this in the book that these internet companies would come to them and they they sort of thought that internet was ngo or something mm-hmm. and and they didn't understand what was happening in their own societies. And memory was just shoved aside and history was shoved aside. And now after we, we shoved it so powerfully aside, it's just exploding in our presence. And people are returning to that with vengeance, looking for an identity long lost in such a technological world in which y- you have no here anywhere. So, yeah. So who do you
2: kind of in a broad sense um, begin to blame for the seeming removal of that history? There's an easy story to tell that the elite's fucked up, that that there was a triumphalism at the end of the Cold War, um, that everyone which is sort of pointing at the scoreboard of history's greatest eradication of extreme poverty um, by a gigantic reversal – in the numbers of uh, countries that were free as opposed to not free. Mm. All these things, all trending in a, in a really fantastic uh, direction. The Stephen Pinker analysis, pe- fewer people are dying uh, in wars. There are fewer wars, even though it feels like there's more. All that. Um, is it the triumphalism of those people and then the mistakes that they made um, having to do with 9-11, the Iraq war, the Great Recession in 2008? Uh, and or is there some responsibility among the, uh, well, first of all, like who, who removed the memory? Was it all Francis Fukuyama? I, I kind of don't mm-hmm. think so. Um, uh, but then is there some responsibility of people to not feel a human empathy for those actual great gains? Like I take great uh, uh, pleasure as a 54 year old to know, uh, to remember living at a time when there was starvation uh, uh, in Asia as a, like, it was a real thing that's happening. And also of course, Africa, because of Live Aid, uh, they, did, they did the starvation. <laughs>
0: yeah. Boomtown as, rats ended up, uh,
2: yeah. yeah. And then finally ended it. Um, like, is there a failure of empathy among people who are like, you know, that, that they, they are so impervious to the story? You're absolutely right that you don't go to someone who's unhappy and show them really nice Steven Pinker charts. That's just not going to work or tell them that their country is great. I get all of that, but like, where does the responsibility go for that sense of of the removal of memory or the or the discounting of cultural experience, for lack of better of, of
1: phraseology? First of all, who are we talking about? I don't we're talking know. about segments of our societies, and not all of our societies. And these segments were, and I bring David Autour's studies about American communities in the United yeah, States, yeah, and yeah. you know, and and others. Segments of our societies were, were left behind. And we all know that. We all know that. And after 2016 and Donald Trump, it was widely discussed in the United States and there was a reckoning afterwards. But it happened everywhere. And one of the things I do in the book is uh, I sort of talk about the way that America um, <clears throat> redrew from a realist version of the world. and from And, and when I say realist, I mean... Understanding its responsibility, mm-hmm. and understanding. So I don't mean realist in the way that usually sure. Americans would use that as a form. As, policy. as, as yeah. John cool. Mearsheimer, yeah. realist. Yeah. I, I, I him, mean yeah. that. Yeah. I mean that in the sense that if America wants to continue and enjoy uh, the perks of being a superpower economically, it needs to be a real superpower. So I, I sort of I demonstrate how it's redrawing from that on the one hand. So what would that mean? Being a real superpower it means first of all that uh, you have and i'm going to use a, a heavy word here you have an imperial ethos yeah. of some sort and the, uh, the the us does have it with american exceptionalism and other elements but and, and it's a very sort of reminiscent of of the roman idea that it's the job of rome is to yeah. uh, to service peace mm-hmm. and security in the world uh, of 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 barbarianism and the US, to some extent, lost its, its steam there. And a lot of it is because of what happened with, within the Republican Party and the rise of, uh, within some progressive circles, uh, some ideas about what the United States is. And I go in length in the book and then I compare it to the European Union, which I think is just a tremendously ambitious and positive Uh, project in the history of human race, probably much more, uh, you know, uh, mind-blowing than the formation of the United States in the 18th century, bringing these people together that just thought a few dozen years ago, and there was a Holocaust, and there was a war there, and bringing them together into a union. And, And then I talk about the difference between being real, and being wishfully thinking about it. So, to your question, who erased memory, people who were so, they, they had su- such a, a, a wishful approach to the future and they wanted it to be different and they thought they can make it different by just, you know, asking for it. And, and they, in, in a sense, much of what we have created, which was in that age of responsibility, advancing tiptoe, just slowly having the UN program uh, for food, having a vaccination problem. So, so these continued, but then you, you saw countries and civilizations experiment with wider and wider ambitions. And sometimes it was too much. So the EU was warned that it will not be able to support this union. If it's not a fiscally united union, it will not be able to support the euro, a monetary union without the fiscal union. This was a conservative approach and it didn't work. And this, one, this is one of the reasons that you see the rise of nationalism in the southern countries in Europe today, but not only nationalism, also radical leftism. I bring in the book this example Chris, of yeah. me <laughs> sitting down in a derelict house yeah. in Athens, in center of Athens, and I don't understand what they're doing, but they're having Molotov cocktails filled when I'm there. And these are radical anarchists. Um, and there's one election there in Greece that
0: if you combined the vote totals of the Golden Dawn, the Nazi Party, uh, which is effectively a Nazi Party, and um, uh, the Communist Party, which is effectively a Stalinist Party, it was some absurd 30 percent or something really yeah. troubling. But to uh, Europe, Europe's a good, a, a good place to go because, you know, it's varied. I mean, I understand the arguments of some Brexiteers. I, you know, disagree with a lot of it. Um, I am, like you, amazingly impressed that it's even survived as long as it has. But how much of this has to do with immigration? I mean, 2015 oh, well, really lot, changed lot. everything,
1: right? So, so, so there are two concepts you know well after yeah. 2016. It's the economy and its culture and immigration. And the data is, and, and, and I bring a lot of data in that sense. The data is very clear. It's about personal security, terror threats, and immigration, and immigration is, is almost number one. So the number one indicator for Brexit, if you want to pick the guy who's going to vote for Brexit, is not his finances or his bank account, yes. is how afraid is he from immigrants? So one of the arguments the elites would make is these people voting to leave the European Union because of immigrants, Are they're of living votes. in places in which there is no one immigrant living there. Yeah. This is We hear this all the time in the United <laughs> States. Um,
0: A a very, very funny comedian that I've been talking about a lot in the past couple of days, Shane Gillis, who has this joke about his father's – he's from Western Pennsylvania and his dad's talking about, you got to build the wall. And he's like, you know, because – there's going to be some uh, Guatemalan guy who's going to come and slap his resume down at his dad's uh, boss's desk. <laughs> but no, that's, uh, no, that's but, right. What, yeah, what yeah. Uh,
1: really outrages me with this argument is the idea that these people that I have met all around the world that don't live in the center of power, they don't understand the demography, that the demography of the country is changing just because they're not seeing the immigrants. Uh, this is so condescending. They understand that, through watching TV, being in social networks, and they don't care. And the number of foreign-born in the United States living in the US has doubled since the 1970s, as you know. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, it doubled since Maastricht, since 1992. And people will I mean, react to that. It, I think it doubled And one in of the, these, the things years, that yeah. I write in the book, which puts me, might put me as a conservative, is that limiting immigration, legal immigration, is not racist. Mm. It's not bigoted. You're allowed, as a country and citizens within the community, if you're going to start discriminating people here or name-calling them, that, that is racist and that is deplorable. But if you do not want new immigrants legally coming to your country, well, you know, you're entitled to do that. And that's one of the meanings of being Liberal, because liberalism and nationhood come together and nationhood in its modern sense is is completely interrelated with liberalism. It's the idea that everybody on this geography is part of a community, but that idea has some limits. It has a border and it's very important to understand that one of the things that progressives <clears throat> on the far off, of, by the way, it's, it's really specific circles. It's not the Bill Clintons, of course, that did yeah, that. Yeah. The, they started He just,
0: the book, by the way, so he's not going to say anything about of it. Of course, yeah. I'm just and, I, yeah. I got,
1: yeah. I got one on teed that. up, go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they, they started, you know, making the argument it's all about everyone. And no, if it's about everyone, it's about no one. It's about no one. And, and this is something that really, uh, I, I think, liberates the demons of, of nationalism. By the way, most of the time when we say populism, we don't mean populism. We mean nationalism. And in the US, they didn't want to use the term nationalist- for donald trump although he is a nationalist
0: well the, the the new kind of broken off part of the republican party calls themselves national conservatives yeah and that's 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 no, I, mean that. I, I mean nationalist no, no, no. National, national conservative is a it, it's trying to it's redolent of nationalism and they mean it that way because yeah. that's very important to them um the conservatism seems Secondary, if not tertiary, in that that argument.
2: A brief point that I would make is that um, I I would assume uh, a huge element of that sense of of revolting against immigration policy is not even that people have the right to choose immigration policy, but very specifically that they did not. That immigration policy was set. I mean, and we've you know god knows we don't defend victor orban on this podcast and i lived in hungary for 3 years opposite, and yeah. saw his rise and his and his heel turn from being a cosmopolitan liberal uh, at the beginning of his career to whatever the hell he is now uh, but the essential point that he made that hungary wanted to choose its own immigration policy that's a normal that's what heads of state do and the eu project which I agree with you is like the greatest single anti-war thing ever created. Like it suppressed more what all the history of Europe says you're going to all kill each other in the face every 20 years forever. <laughs> uh, and they more or less stopped since then. And that's a great achievement. And then going like, Oh, we need to have monetary union and also without fiscal union. And we're going to make some of these essential uh, decisions in a centralized place that you have no impact over. You person who lives even in, in in the capital city, let alone like the the, the little house you're going to make Maltev cocktails in in Greece, um, that's so self evidently not going to work. I do want to flip the conversation because we're talking right now in mid November. Um, Israel's just had elections. The United States just had elections, um, and I'm really uh, uh, fascinated to get your sense of ha- what happens to your thesis when it butts up against a numbers problem. In America, the numbers problem is that Donald Trump peaked at whatever it was, 47% in 2016. And every single election, more people peel off. Uh, And right now there's a huge triumphal dance and we might be doing a little bit of our, ourselves on this podcast. I will, I will <laughs> confess um, that Trump got his hat handed to him, and he, of course, he declared that he's running for president. We'll see wh- when, if, and when that actually happens in an actual run for president. But he's certainly uh, getting money uh, for the. Uh, so
1: the ki- New York Post kind of yeah thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there multiple was,
0: multiple covers now, there yes. go,
2: but it, the best one was like Florida Florida man, man. man. Florida, Florida man, man. Man's Florida man makes yeah. announcement yeah. 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 recites words page twenty six <laughs> it's fantastic yeah but uh so there's a, there's a, a a victory dance going on right now of people who are saying look that's it the wave has crested we're done from your point of view thinking about your book um not to like have your sense of the victory dance, but like what happens when, okay,
1: it's not 47% anymore, now it's 40%. So so I had the publisher asking the, that question yeah. and he said, uh, basically you're arguing it's and you say, so what, what if it isn't? And then I said, well, then I'm wrong and that makes my theory right now, you know, valid. I'm not going to try, and I wrote this in 2018. My argument, and that was sort of the, the headline of the interviews I gave in Germany, is Trump is just the beginning. Yeah. I'm, I'm not really worried. I know what I'm saying right now. Is, I'm not worried about Trump, maybe because I'm living in Israel, because Trump, uh, as Tom Friedman, I think, uh, wrote, he, he never made his homework, you know, this guy. So this is not uh, the new Adolf Hitler. Well I mean he was also
0: I mean there's very 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 few co- countries in the world that you can actually make an argument that he provided a great benefit for and that would be Israel would be the one example with the Abraham accords.
1: Yeah absolutely and and I I don't I, you know I don't vilify him completely although he, he's definitely on a very uh, specific side as far as I'm concerned but my argument is that what comes next is something more organized and unfortunately, I think something more vicious. Uh, this this energy is not going anywhere. This is a crusade. And you've got their, and these are the people I'm fighting with on my Twitter feed. So th- you've got their uh, anti-vexers, neoludits, um, you know, anti-science, conspiracy theories, uh, radical uh, Bakuninites. <laughs> to be clear, I don't know we're if you talk- can say that we're yes, talking yeah, yeah, yeah. we're talking left and right. We're yeah, not of talking, course. Yes. Yeah, right, uh, you know, uh, of course, nationalist, fascist nationalists racist nationalists and all the rest, and what, they're on what, the march right now. What if I? Uh, and and I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, <laughs> so, you
0: know, I mean, I hope you are too. And yeah. but let me push back a tiny bit and suggest that, and then we can go into opinion polls and polls that you cite, et cetera, and more recent polls um, that. The visibility is much clearer now because of things like Twitter, and it's always been there, right? I mean, I mean, there was no communication method in France in the 1990s, nevertheless, and there was the cordon sanitaire around. What about around, the, minitel? Yeah, well, the, uh, the minitel? The, the, was minitel, right you know, there. <laughs> the minitel was sending, sending racist minitel messages, but, um, but you know, the the, the the like, you know, Front National did not have the media on its side. It, you know, it had its own little party organs, but not in the way that it does now, and you can in this. In this age. So is it that this stuff is either on on the march or triumphant or is it that these people who have always existed are
1: now in our faces? I I don't know. But the bottom line is that you can harness this to politics and to political power. And there's no doubt about that. So it's either the question you're talking about is the question of media and the way that the Internet age has changed everything. We have, after World War II, suppressed that virus of of, uh, political racism. And we have done so by socially boycotting whoever would, you know, rise up in a room uh, and start preaching to just a regular crowd, a general crowd. And of course, Facebook and Twitter allowed us, allowed them to find their echo chambers and everybody's written about that. Uh, at any rate, whether it's, it's just uh, the image, as, as you're, I think you're arguing, or it's real, it still can be used for political gain. So it's part of the game. Uh, I'm a journalist, you're a journalist. I used to write in a newspaper in, I don't know, 2005. We would get letters... You know, nobody would actually read all of them, at least in my newspaper. It's a small Israeli newspaper. Nobody would actually read them. They would pick something and publish it. And today, you know, this guy finds something wrong in my article and he has something to say. He'll write a post in Facebook and, you know, it can go on. Everything's changed in that sense. So that power structure is definitely dead or at least dying or challenged or changed or morphed or something. And the meaning of that uh, to, to your question is that it cannot be suppressed. And the entire liberal project, and when I say liberal, it's not in the American sense of liberal. I mean liberal both right and left. Liberal in the sense of, you know, the U.S. independence, the idea of the republic, was, was basically a top-down project, it was a top down project. But was the-, the
0: project too liberal in the American sense too? In the sense that, you know, you, all, uh, well, well, you know, when you sense that the Donald Trump argument and this European argument is the exact same thing. It's, and it's been going on for I'm particularly talking about some countries I pay attention to like Denmark and Sweden, where, you know, we're taking the media back. The media has always had a liberal bias. The institutions have had a liberal bias. There might be a Republican president, might be a conservative uh, parliament or whatever it might be. Academia. But academia, uh, fundamentally. Entertainment. It's, it's liber- entertainment, exactly. And this is the revolt. This is part, a huge part of the revolt. Any credence to that? Do you, do, do, you, do you think that there's something to that? Whether you agree with the liberal part of this, the conservative part of this in that American sense, is it real or is it
1: imagined? Well, first of all, it's for sure it's re- Are you asking me if uh, media and, uh, and the establishment are more liberal? I, I, I mean, I think that's probably pretty obvious. But yeah.
0: Is that having a disproportionate effect? Because, I mean, I always come when I talk to people and I've interviewed a million people on this. There's two things that can will always come up, always. And that 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 is uh, um, uh, media and immigration, every time. Mm. Sometimes they they smuggle immigration through something like healthcare, which they were doing all the time in Austria. They're like, Mm. well, the, the hospitals are so crowded now. <laughs> Why are they so crowded? There you go, and then you get into the <laughs> thing. But it's always sounds very Austrian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds it sounds more sinister. I apologize. Within... I apologize. Yeah. I'm sorry yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to all your yeah. American
1: Austrians. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. never sounds too okay. soon with yeah. Austria. Yeah. Well, yeah. they have
0: an apology. Oh, maybe I don't apologize <laughs> yeah. to Austrians. You know what? Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want to apologize. <laughs> you know that so. leader uh, that they had in Germany, yeah. actually, an Austrian. Um, so, <laughs> so let's not forgive them too much. Yeah. Um, but that those two things always come up, and I know that you know that's I, we can't deny that it's true. But what percentage would you give that, or what kind of weight would you give that, that the revolt of the public, in Martin Gurry's phrase, and, and you're just playing revolt in the, the title of your book, is a reaction to, we control these instruments and you never can. Now
1: you have the instruments to actually make your voice heard, and that's going to change. I think it, it, it has a lot to do with that. Um, but I, I, I think it's about real things, and not only the way that it's being t- transcribed to us through, through media. So I think people actually think about the United States, the people I met with least, and I was, I, even after the book I was in Arizona and many other places, um, people feel that the country is, is changing and they feel threatened. And that threat is, is because of the country changing. And that threat is because the job sometimes can be terminated immediately. And the word immediately is really important back then. Yeah. Because if you have a union and you work in a factory, it takes, usually it takes time. It takes time to these things to actually interact and today it's so quickly and, and you have a human life behind you and you have a family, it changes everything. Your finances are, are being maneuvered until recently, until interest rates were rising. Since 2008, you are being manipulated to be an investor, actually a speculator, in, in order to save money for your children. In the, ba- you know, in the past, you would put that money in the bank and you would get your 5 or 6% interest rate and you would live a better life. So you're surrounded by these threats. And when I say that, that seems like I'm talking about other people, that's not me. But that, you know, I'm a journalist. Uh, uh, media and communication in this country are not doing too well because Google, YouTube, Facebook uh, are taking all the, the media kind of <coughs> uh, advertising. Uh, so everything, almost all media and communication in this country is dying. It's just slowly dying, but it's dying. It's not making money anymore. Hmm. So uh, that means that my channel can die immediately. Um, my, my newspaper would be threatened by advertising. So that would also be true to an extent for me. Of course, immigration is not an issue in Israel because Israel does not allow a, a, you know, just usual immigration. It, it allows you know, Jewish immigration to this country in the form of Aliyah. Um, well, it's not an immigration country. It doesn't have an immigration ethos beyond being a, a Jewish homeland. And even so that I mean, might change
2: too. But know? that's that that's a big immigration. I mean, immigrate. Oh no, I'm, not, I'm immigration. Not, I'm not downplaying it. But per, per capita that, here has got to be as big as anywhere else in the world. Oh, of
1: course, we have 1.2 million. Russian-speaking people in this country. This is a 10 million country. uh, And this is the most, by the way, most educated immigration in history of a group, of a collective that came to this country. They're part of the Israeli miracle in economy since the 1990s. So yes, I'm not downplaying that, but we don't think about it as immigration and we don't use that word. They're not immigrants. We don't use that word in Hebrew. We are using the word aliyah, which means they are... Coming but, to or sure, rising, yeah, yeah. you know, coming to us, mm-hmm. and that means that they're part of the family. To, and that's, to, that's
0: different. And just a one little point on that, and um, you know, I don't want to get detoured too much by Israeli politics, but um, there's some suggestion that will change to of who qualifies to uh, make Aliyah. And, and oh Virginia yeah, from. of course,
1: I'm writing about this. Yeah, yeah,
0: and that's and it's also when if you look in America. What's the conversation about Ben Gavir and all of this, this of radical, um, r- racist? It's completely kind. warranted, yeah. And and yeah. particularly because of his uh, uh, connections to Rabbi Kahane and they, we know him in New York, and yeah. you know, the JDL was a terrorist organization mm-hmm. on the State Department's list, etc. So, is that in a way coming like all these conversations? He moved here having? and he yeah. had
1: his own terrorist organization, yeah, he here, did, and then he which had, was outlawed, yeah, it was yeah. outlawed. And he yeah. was can ki- he
0: return to the U.S., yeah, yeah, he kicked out of the Knesset, right? And yeah. then he was assessed. Fascinated mm. in the US and a man who basically served no time for that, by the way, which is very odd that the, the gunman never really served I time didn't know that.
2: Yeah, he was, he was- That um, man's um, name was Kanye West.
0: Uh, <laughs> it was Dave Chappelle. Um, and yeah, he was, <laughs> so um, is that coming, like, it's in a different form, but it's an immigration debate, right? It's about the number of people coming to this country, whether or not they qualify as Jewish if they converted, et cetera. And uh, pretty radical. It's, it's a racist th- kind of party too. Yeah, yeah. It's about who
1: who's us. Who's us? Yeah. Who's us? Yeah. So, um, so th- that's that's a huge issue. And, and I'm one of those who are extremely worried about uh, Ben Gvir and about the way that the Israeli media gave him a lot, a lot of uh, slack and a lot of airtime. Uh, in in recent years, yeah. So, um, <laughs> who felt guilty about having so, someone else? Uh, I, so I, uh, basically, it was because of sensationalism. It wasn't because of ideology. Uh, these editors, which I know, or hosts of either radio shows, or they don't vote for for his party or for any of these parties. But it was always interesting to have him on, and he became from a figure that didn't get. Uh, to the threshold of passing to our parliaments, it's called the Knesset, to a point in which today he's the new star of the Israeli right. And he's definitely an extreme right-winger, a disciple of the racist Rabbi Kahana, a man who had a picture of a mass merger in his living room, a mass merger that murdered dozens of Muslim uh, is Baruch Goldstein in, yeah. in, in Bar yeah. Goldstein, uh, yeah. Goldstein in, in Hebron yeah. in his living room uh, this guy is a guy who threatened Itzhak Rabin on a TV show before Rabin was assassinated in the same year so uh, the idea that he's and he's going to be uh, responsible for homeland security yeah not just
2: a member of parliament from a small minority party but given most likely a important crucial police power within the executive branch
1: of the government. Yeah, although in this country, I have to say... You know, this country is sort of an Italian miracle in that sense. They never tell you that when you come to Israel. So all the politicians, I'm saying this to the people listening, all these politicians, you come to Israel and you get all these functionaries and politicians and all their, you know, (coughs) assistants explaining to you how genius they were to create this high-tech hub. Oh, no, 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 no. This is an Italian miracle economy. It worked not because of government, okay? It, it worked because of the challenges, because of the challenges, uh, the security challenges and money appropriated to the IDF and to the security apparatus. That's for sure. But not because of government policy. Uh, and, and in that sense, you know, Ben-Gvir, his ability to really change the rules is going to be very compli- complicated. And the reason Netanyahu wants to give him that brief that portfolio of homeland security is because Netanyahu thinks is he, that it's going to kill him politically oh that's you know, interesting yeah you want homeland security you think you have no, solutions no. to all the problems you have no experience in Israeli government hey here you go let's see what happens now this is a classic netanyahu maneuver netanyahu is of course one of the most successful if not the most successful leader in the Western kind of democratic world, if you just measured the, Politician. 100%, yeah, the, the, yeah. the amount of time that he's been in, in power, and he did that a few times before. You want this brief so badly, here you go, you're getting it. Yeah. And then he kills him. Now, my worry is that maybe he's underestimating Benavir. And if he is underestimating him, <laughs> he's taking a hell of a wager on the fate of this country, with nominating such a provocateur to the position of a homeland minister. This is really for many, many Israelis. This is the end, or the beginning of the end. People are talking uh, immigration, uh, and they're talking about this, you know- Are they gonna move to Canada? Yeah. You know this American trope, right? I know people who have children already registered for September, They are. I'm not saying you know. People always say we're going to leave in the U S. After twenty seven. they always say that it's never an exodus, and it's not going to be that. Uh, But the feeling is that you know that the tilting here is just too radical, and there is a difference from the U S.
0: Is it overdrawn? Is it? Is it? I I, I mean, I said this to somebody we talked to today. Um, who is saying, it's not, not a big deal. And one could imagine that it's overdrawn a little bit, particularly when you're in the United States, we just had a midterm and it was preceded by three weeks of coverage that there's going to be violence, fascism, democracies over. And then it's like, oh, exactly what I expected is yeah. that another day, right? Mm-hmm. Not because Donald Trump lost, but because it just was never in the cards. Is it? Is it that real of a possibility?
1: I don't know. I, it's, uh, so I need to be, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, a crystal ball. Yeah, kind of, yeah, I, I, yeah. But, but I do know that this is the first time probably in the last 35 or 40 years that we have a 100% right-wing government with the ultra-orthodox and their power has increased substantially. And that means that there is simply no one that will stop them from revolutionizing our judicial system, tackling our beginning of a constitution. We don't have a real constitution. Um, and, and trying to change the appropriations of resources so that more will go to, for instance, uh, yeshiva and less would go to other places. Now, these things are going to happen. I just don't know the velocity and uh, the intensity in which they're going to happen. But if they're going to happen as they proclaimed it during the elections, it's going to be a different country. Again, I'm not sure Netanyahu wants, you know, this to be his legacy. Uh, uh, but, but Netanyahu today, he's, he's not the same Netanyahu as he was. He's, in, you know, he has to go to court. Uh, there's the threat of jail time. And very real threat of jail time, right? Yes, yes, yeah, of course. Eudolmer, yeah, yeah. uh, the former prime minister, sat in jail for corruption. He's indicted for corruption. He's running a very complicated case. And I don't think it's, it's going too well for him. Uh, but, you know, now he can control everything because he has this supermajority and he doesn't have anyone in his coalition to to stop him. And there is a consensus building in that enormous camp between ultra-Orthodox and hyper Jewish nationalists, which once didn't use to talk because the ultra-Orthodox were very much against nationalism, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. And today they have this combined coalition you know, very much intent on changing Israel. Now, are these just big words, sort of virtue signaling within their voter camp? I don't know. But for people like me, it is, you know, definitely threatening. And and I I think also for our industries, for our economies. And that's one of the reasons that Netanyahu, coming into power after, in his victory speech, already started signaling out, no, everything's going to be okay. You mm-hmm. know, don't and, and and you know, I was approached by Likud officials saying, "You know, we want this message out." Why is he doing that after the elections? He's doing that after the. And That's not Donald Trump, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. That's not Donald Trump reassuring Democrats that everything's going to be fine after the election. Definitely not. He's I remember doing his it speech
2: for us. <laughs> he's literally. I mean, we sat on a on a on a talk today from a Lee Koop politician, yeah. uh-huh. and the whole message, it, it was just that, like, it, it's it's gonna be fine, we're normal, we're a democracy, this isn't going to be unusual, we're gonna rewrite
1: the Supreme Court rules, not a problem, they do it in Canada, come on. Yeah, um, yeah, like, that's, yeah was- of course, for instance, the Canadian example, we're not gonna go into it, but it's just bollocks, yeah. as they say <laughs> in the UK, because in Canada, yeah. they do that, but they cannot jeopardize uh, the Bill of Rights, yeah. for instance, and in this country there is no Bill of Rights. Yeah. So um, they are really working now with the Israeli DNA, and and it's a young DNA. So it's it's very uh, uh, it's very easy to start playing with these elements, uh, and also demography is changing. The U.S. is becoming a more multi-minority country, in essence. Uh, uh, this country. Uh, is becoming more traditional i'm just talking demographics right now uh you uh, the main i think the main denomination today in the united states are people who say in polls they don't have a religion Mm -hmm. okay so in this country you don't get that so you see a rise in the in the uh, of the ultra orthodox a rise of some elements of the orthodox which are not ultra orthodox and and it, the demography of the country is changing to a more traditional place, and that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And and for and that doesn't mean that Tel Aviv is growing smaller, because uh, fertility in this country is is big for everyone. Mm-hmm. Just for you,
2: non-Israeli uh, listeners out there, Tel Aviv is. The uh you, the, the the beards per capita is is smaller, <laughs> smaller. in, in, in television. The mean, hats per capita yeah, way smaller like it's, in television. They're hipster beards. Jerusalem. We yeah. have a
0: contest in uh, South Williamsburg where <laughs> I used to live in the Hasidic neighborhood, which was the 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 joke is always hipster or Hasidic. Yeah, and uh, you couldn't tell from far away. Get close, and you know yeah. you'd win the game if that was oh it's Hasidic. Uh, yeah, not not as much here. I mean, obviously Jerusalem's very different. Uh, we won't keep you any longer. Um, uh, I have just one final I mean, do you, do you want no. to close it out?
2: Close it. you close yeah, it. Close
0: it out. It's just a, ba- a basic thing. Um, th- this is 2018. Um, this book, Revolt, Nadavayal, uh, what would you add to it now? What would you say, like, do you, do you think you, did, you, you had a pretty good prediction and is it going in the direction that you suspected it would, w- so, would go? So
1: the American edition is 2021 and it's, it's yes. balanced to the Biden victory and everything. Oh, So it's updated for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't think that people appreciate enough what happened during COVID and I would definitely change the book. So I mentioned COVID in the book and the way that COVID sort of exposed how these power structures don't work anymore. So it plays into my theme generally. But I think that we have yet to understand the extent of what it did for instance, in the way that people trust or mistrust science. So I'm just reading this fantastic book about Galileo Galilei that was published uh, a few years ago after Trump. And I don't remember the name of the writer who's a famous scientist. You probably remember uh, that book. And, and I'm thinking about how easy it is. And that's one of the arguments I make in the book. You know, progress seems so powerful, but it's actually so fragile. And it's always dependent on leaders redrawing from folly and for communities working and struggling for for its values. And I think COVID-19 really proved that there are, you know, large segments of our societies that feel so detached. And me, me included sometimes, don't know how the world, this world exactly works. And I'm not sure that we can keep on going like that. Sitting in this studio being recorded, Mm. people listening to us, I don't understand exactly how we're recorded. I don't understand exactly how this is being transpired to people back home technologically. And, oh, I and, thought and you were to say,
0: I don't understand how anyone would listen to this fucking podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we do fair that. About, we, it's okay, totally fair. Yeah, and Totally fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, like that. a, that's a, not as hopeful as I was uh, expecting Aimful? or aiming yeah. for, but yeah. um, I have a very good friend from Sweden, uh, Johan Norberg, uh, which you might know. Uh, and Johan is the happiest person in the Still world. and every
2: optimist of planet president
0: Earth. President optimist. He used to have a column in a Swedish magazine called It's Getting Better. Um, and he <laughs> Stephen Pinker cites him in his book yeah. and uh, I've been influenced by him quite a bit and I, I, I love you on um, but this is uh, much more pessimistic maybe we can have the two of you on together um, he's also very mild-mannered and Swedish and very very nice um, Am I mild-mannered? It's no, not no, good. no, no, no it's D- your, Don't allow me to no, go was, back
1: to the Israeli Literally just, Please don't ha- say that There know? was a member of parliament
0: screaming in my face for 45 minutes so yeah. everybody is mild-mannered <laughs> It was longer than that It was probably longer than that <laughs> uh, My friend I tell you it's just it was like yelling.
1: Really, he repeated Is this the member of parliament that said to you that everything's going to be okay in Israel? Yeah, everything's yes. fine, my
0: friend. Yeah, everything.
1: Everything's good. <laughs>
0: everything, everything. Canada have the same thing. What are you talking about? Canada have the same thing. Very fast talking. Um, but when he was talking about Canada, I was like, what? And then he started talking
2: about Putin. Swear to God, did you yeah, notice that? Yeah, he did. Yeah, it it, not, not the Russian leader.
0: No, no, the, no. Poutine, the, for, the
1: yeah. French-Canadian. Uh, I'm not embarrassed at all at this point. No, 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 you
0: mean? shouldn't be because yeah. I've interviewed yeah. members of Congress and they're <laughs> all complete fucking morons. Excuse my language. I shouldn't say, should I, can I swear? You,
2: you can, it's Tel Aviv, it's not Jerusalem. Oh,
0: okay, okay, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was in Temple. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it's uh, having been amongst American politicians who seem to be getting dumber by the day and we have a listener, a friend, uh Representative Peter Meyer, who was primaried by and, and with help from the Democratic Party, uh, and it turned out to be, you know, it turned out to work for them because the Trumpy candidate lost. And, uh, you know, interviewing him, it was, it was about six months ago, Amy, eight months on Capitol Hill. And after we were done, it was such a good conversation. I was like, "He can't last here. Yeah. <laughs> he's too smart. Like he's too clever." And then I, I just went kind of over normal and nice. Yeah, he's a normal, I mean, nice for guy. A rich kid. Yeah, he's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so his family owns a chain of grocery stores. It's fine, um, but you know, and then you, you, you the the people who are most effective is the Marjorie Taylor Greens who get the most oxygen, and um, you know they're halfwits, and that is a great. Uh, benefit in American politics. I don't feel better, but thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm you trying try, to. You really try.
1: you well, know? You made me feel like shit. I have yeah, to yeah, yeah, respond okay. in kind. I, I feel it.
2: fantastic. Okay. <laughs> that's because of the cheap wine. That's, oh, yes. This are, is the best. Are you kidding? This is Barkhan Premium. Bar, that's Barkhan
0: Premium. <laughs> For Nadavayel, the uh, author of Revolt, the worldwide uprising against globaliz- globalization, we bring a bottle of Barkhan Premium <laughs> that I think was made three days ago uh, <laughs> and uh, from Tel Aviv. If you stick around, ladies and gentlemen, you'll probably hear hear that little interstitial music. And Matt and I will be back to talk a little bit more. And I had an idea that we would be here in Tel Aviv in the Jewish state and the two goys would talk about Dave Chappelle and anti-Semitism. Absolutely. So we'll do that in a second. Uh, Nadav, thank you so much. It was absolutely fantastic. And uh, I'm going to insist on you coming back. So
1: thank you very much. Thank you so much. Now uh, new method all right yeah, well back. I said we
0: 'd be back and we 're back, but we 're in a studio, so we have to be fast because well, there's a quickie there 's a quickie because there 's other people studio there 's an Israeli guy who 's giving us fifteen minutes, so we shouldn 't waste time and uh, I want to thank Nadav, um, we have to be dumb now because that was very smart, right There was a very deep dive into big, broad issues when t- <laughs> Typically we're on this podcast, we're like, look at this fucking dumb thing someone said.
2: You know, we can go broad. I think the listeners really want to know, Moynihan, about uh, how you've been holding up just professionally. It's
0: nearly impossible.
2: uh, With that many hot uh, IDF soldiers.
0: if Yael said, who said that it was too, it was very intellectual. She didn't say it was too intellectual, she said very intellectual. So Matt asks a question that is obviously in the exact opposite direction, which is um, watching me... (laughs) With my knuckles dragging and my tongue <laughs> wagging at uh, attractive women with uh, automatic weapons, pretty, I don't. I, I mean, mean, like nineteen. Though this is not a political. Yeah. Uh, the, did you see the Trump hands said this? Not yeah. political. It's yeah. not at all. It's not a political thing. I just. I don't care. I, uh, it's not about the occupation. I, no opinion. Just uh, attractive ladies with guns. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say. I'm not a like commanders, <laughs> yes,
2: like <crazy>. Iron Dome <laughs> yes. commanders.
0: Yes, but yes, we've been in Israel. It's incredibly um, fun. It's an odd thing that it's a very really odd country in a couple of ways, isn't it? You, you know? think? Yeah, you I'm think? looking at her through the glass. She's yeah. not. She's nodding, and I'll tell yeah. you why. I got up this morning, and it was well, it was yesterday. I got up at uh, six thirty, and this very nice part of town, and everywhere you go, is like really nice coffee shops.
2: They They're all open. closed. They were not open. No.
0: Uh, 8 30. Uh, nine o'clock. Uh, startup nation like how the fuck do you have a startup nation? Like you can't get coffee before like 9 30. So gonna, these are my complaints. Don't look at me. These are the complaints. Uh, that is uh, the, my major complaint. Is that? Uh, but it's it, everything's buzzing. Everything's happening. It's Tuesday night, Monday night,
2: and there's about forty thousand people in the street drinking. So, and we had a bartender who, <laughs> who uh, recognized a friend of ours. Recognized a friend of ours. Yeah. Uh, like did, wanted gossip about Barry Weiss. Yes. Uh, yes. Also, also like yes. uh, was would is uh, this
0: is this helping uh, Dave Chappelle's theory or hurting it? It's
2: unclear. <laughs> <laughs> the, the conspiracy so vast the bartender that, yeah. was giving us free shots was like telling us and I, I, sadly I filmed it but someone was yeah, yapping yeah, too yeah, much yeah. didn't get it but like uh, of his theory about why Andrew Schultz yes that's is right is basically an Israeli which is not that's something right. that, that yeah. occurred to me yeah. with Andrew Schultz because yeah, no, he's it. not uh, an Israeli he yeah, looks a bit Israeli but yeah I mean
0: yeah. he's funny and uh, yeah and it's uh, I've had uh, multiple conversations about and we should address this briefly because yeah. I want to address it briefly is the, uh, cause it's kind of perfect for this, for where we are right now. Um, and we're here having fun, checking things out, talking to interesting people. Um, so it's been a, a, a truly amazing trip. During all this, Dave Chappelle, uh, does a monologue on SNL, which he, uh, it's kind of compounding on each other, right? He's defending Kanye and he, oh, and making people, fun of him too. And making fun of him too. And he does a bit, uh, which, makes people angry and says it normalizes anti-Semitism. And I'm watching this debate from a, from a bus in Israel on, yeah. my, on my phone. Yeah. And I'm like, I, this, nothing makes sense in this world anymore. People are talking about yeah, it on yeah. the bus. People are talking about on the bus. A lot of Jews around me. Yeah. That's it. It's pretty Jewish. That's it. A lot of Jews. And I was just like, this is, they're talking about it now? And talking about Hollywood. So Dave Chappelle, of course, you've, you've heard this. It makes a joke and, and, and says, uh, well, you know, basically says Kanye's not wrong. Um, but tries to save himself, which is totally bullshit, when he said, you know, there are a lot of black people in Ferguson, but they don't run the place. Uh, it, it's a funny I'm little thing. Funny. It's funny, but it's not. And I think the problem is, this is my problem with it, and I'm interested in see what you think about this. Chappelle started doing serious material, right, after uh, the George Floyd stuff.
2: He did, 30, he did the outdoor COVID one.
0: 30 minute thing in which he starts the bit saying, it's not a bit. There are no jokes here. And I'm just going to be honest. And he does that a number of times now. So the blurring of the line is almost his own. And then the weird thing is Jon Stewart, um, John Liebowitz is that his uh, yeah. last name? Wh- which we determined the other night. Was the last. He's the last. Last American Jew to change their name for entertainment to deadname reasons. Himself. Yeah, last dead naming of an American Jew. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> I think so.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's the title. Yeah, of his the name podcast. was actually Lucy Leibowitz, <laughs> and now he's John Stewart. But Stewart goes on to Colbert's show. They're friends, and he—he—he—I he, mean, they're very close friends. And makes a pretty vigorous uh, defense of him. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld today saw a uh, Catholic. Uh, from Boston, Jerry yeah. uh, Seinfeld uh, defended him too and said, Look, you know, they're jokes, blah, 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 blah.
2: I don't know. We've had some mixed responses. My feeling, and I watched it uh, that night on YouTube before uh, uh, apparently became unavailable uh, in this country. Oh, so some people are, no, no, uh,
0: it's, it's not, it's a so it's right. It's, it's a, a right thing. It's, it's, it's not, thing. No, it's they're censorship. not censoring
2: um, hilarious anti Uh, is that okay? I, I thought, <laughs> <laughs> can I say that? Is that all right? Did the mic get cut again? It's <laughs> with this redundant stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, I thought it was funny. Um, funny. and, uh, and it was, it was, uh, clever in his way. And he comes back around to it at the end and pulls the rug out from, under. it's what Dave Chappelle does. does yeah. Um, but the thing that he dodged and, uh, and he left comedy on the table. This is this is the only, I mean, if it's if it's funny is number one, yeah. is it is it at least half smart in that Chappelle way of, of like working around and in and out of places and being on both sides of things. I love that about him. It's one of my favorite things about him and it's also very, it's usually structured very well, which this was as well, but he left comedy on the table yeah. um, in the dodge of like, well, you know, Kanye, you know, it wasn't black Americans who did the Holocaust. There's a lot of comedy in NOI bat shit yes. crazy predominantly though not only african-american um crazy anti-semitism yes it's hilariously yes. wrong and it's stupid yeah. and crazy and you could yeah. do a supercut of five thousand hours of really yeah. bad 1991 krs1 rap oh yeah uh, like sure. it's it'd be fantastic yeah. to do that and it's so ripe for I mean, you know, he got into Kanye's stuff a little little bit bit, at the beginning, but it is really funny. It's really crazy and batshit. And it's not sufficiently uh, like intelligent just to say, well, they didn't (laughs) do the Holocaust.
0: Yeah. And that's, isn't, that's a dumb, it's a dumb line of, it's, it's not, it's not a funny joke, right? That's the most important thing with Chappelle. And he's an insanely funny person. He's one of the best standups of his generation. Um, I think his most recent, not his most recent, but sticks and stones is one of the great specials, probably in modern stand, and uh, history, it's like up there with Richard Pryor um, and Sunset Strip. But, you know, look, I, I think the weird thing is he makes one point that, that people have just literally ignored is that the in, it used to be. And this is what he's addressing here. In a way, it used to be that pointing out proportionality issues, shall we say, um, there are X number of people in X profession, shall we say, was itself considered anti-Semitic, right? The invocation of it was anti-Semitic, right? And the reason for that is a good one. It's a totally justifiable one because there's two steps in that, right? The next step is always, and therefore it is a conspiracy, right? Yeah. There is a vast conspiracy
2: and that is- They control.
0: They control. That is uh, uh, dangerous thinking. It is has a very rich history of leading to incredible violence and, uh, you know, ultimately genocide in one specific example. But it's not even just that example. It's all over that that has always been the thing. Rothschild's conspiracies, et cetera. The thing that people mistake when they try to jump the gun is Dave is making a joke that the, the disproportionality exists, right? And it's what Camille said when we have these conversations about the number of white people in certain industries. And then we have to announce parody that we normalize those conversations, but this one has not been normalized. And you know what, you know
2: what? I, and, for, and for totally understandable reasons. I usually think that Camille is uh, brushing up against what about is him there? Yeah. And thankfully I wasn't on at least I one, love that he's not here. one of the episodes where he, where he prattled <laughs> on about fucking Kanye. Cause I didn't have to listen to it.
0: I think Yale sent me a message and she was like, "This he's actually like an anti-Semite." She's, yeah. Yeah, she was like, "He is in the Nation of Islam." <laughs> um, she said it. She said it like she wrote we it. Look, we can't hear her on I the know, other side of the glass look, booth. There's a lot in, of
2: gesticulation. Oh, I think that's the universal yeah. sign. It was in Hebrew. I didn't. I, I did not Google <laughs> two, Translate, but yeah, <laughs> universal yeah. sign. Um, yeah. But uh, I'm actually there is something to be said about the conspiratorial nature yeah. of the workaday racial discourse in the United States and on an elite level, it, it, uh, 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 yes, there's a conspiracy across, yeah. of the whites yeah. um, that are doing all of these things. And it's not just that they are acting in concert in a way to immiserate uh, um, the dis uh, favored populations, but that that actual exploitation yeah. is what is enriching them. Yeah. That is a mainstream view. Totally mainstream view. In a certain. Uh,
0: Stewart points this out, which is really amazing to me. I mean, as you know, I mean, John Stewart, very liberal guy. Um, it goes through it and, you know, he elides it in a way, but he says like, look, you know, these are the conversations we have. And one of them is you got your job because of white privilege. For instance, like th- there's a, there's a versions of these things. And he says it to a totally stone faced and almost stunned Uh, uh, Stephen Colbert, who has a very rigid set of views that never, never move. And, you know, Stuart was on actually talking about the lab leak theory and uh, Colbert said, what do you work for uh, Senator Ron Johnson? Like he's, he's not a, he's not a man of evolution and I'll give Stuart credit. I think his new show is absolute garbage. Yeah, I think it's not funny. I think it's like uh, sanctimonious and, and stupid, but he has shown himself willing now granted this is his friend uh, to you know, think a little bit broader about this stuff, and I think John Stewart is a, is somebody who's talked about anti semitism. He's he's Jewish. He knows he's a stand up. He had a pretty. It was a bit messy in places, but he had a pretty decent defense of him. And uh, look, I think the point is is that never, we never we can talk about this stuff. We never want to empower comedy with th- all of this social meaning. Correct. Look, yes. They do it themselves. I just said, Dave Chappelle does it himself. We talk about it in that way too, but it's losing some of its yeah, luster want, because I, we, it's, it's becoming too serious. I right? don't
2: want to nitpick Dave Chappelle uh, yeah. at all. It's a comedy bit. Let's not, let's yeah. not overthink it. Yeah. Um, it's fine. Um, however, or, and um, there is, if you don't like what uh, he said, but specifically what Kanye said, a thing to do in that moment is to say, where else does that type of thinking um, infect us where the, the Semitism part of the anti-Semitism isn't necessarily there. Um, if if those modes of thinking bother you, uh, when applied to the world's, you know, oldest and greatest and most pernicious prejudice in many ways, um, does it apply elsewhere? And if you hate it there, um, think about hating it in other places. In addition, it doesn't have to be the only place that you hate it.
0: I think our friend uh, Coleman Hughes said something about this, of that it it often comes back to the uh, oppression Olympics in a way of like, we didn't do this. We're treated badly, too, which is not. uh, It's reverse oppression uh, Olympics. Yeah, it's a it's a dodge of something that if if the argument people are making is that this is normalizing something, Stuart, I think, is right in saying that it's, if you've looked at a comment section anytime recently, it's been normal for a long time. And I hate to always point this out, but if you look at FBI hate crime statistics, top of that list is always Jews. And it's not, it's, it is not um, adjusted for population. I mean, it's just the number of incidents always at the top. It's like, this is not something that is new. We
2: don't have enough Jews,
0: do we? we have It's a very small population, yeah. and yet, very, very high in that list. And all of a sudden people are mad because of Dave Chappelle. I, I don't, I, it's, if Chappelle had never made a trans joke, I don't think that we'd be having the exact same discussion. That that is also, you know, he's, he's been, he's been in hot water for other things. Um, We wanted to have that conversation because of where we were and it's really awkward and, Israelis is staring at us like it's not only time to go, but what you just said was horrible.
2: Yeah. Um, so <laughs> at least we're in an underground yeah. bomb shelter. We're in an so, underground right? bomb shelter. So uh, <laughs> above fun. ground would not work. Um,
0: but uh, we'll be back next week. We'll be back on Sunday, I presume, with yeah. a uh, subscriber only episode. All three of us again, uh, and then probably Wednesday of next week again, when we're all back uh, and caught up on sleep in America. And so thank you guys for uh, listening, and uh, thanks to Israel for. being being fun Shalom so, Alright, bye